share with you a little bit of a story, or a story about a man named Mr. Pinocchio. It's an excerpt from a Scientific, Scientific American. Uh, it's an article that was written in 2018. 51-year-old man that the scientist called Mr. Pinocchio had a strange problem. When he tried to tell a lie, he often passed out and had convulsions. Man, you can imagine how that might go. You come back from your fishing trip, Patrick, you know what I'm talking about? You just fall <laughs> convulsing, talk, talking about all the big fish that you caught. When he tried to tell a lie, he passed out and had convulsions. For the patient, the consequences were all too real. He was a high-ranking official in the European Union. And his negotiating partners could tell immediately when he was bending the truth. His condition was not only dangerous, it was bad for his career. We just let that hit you for a moment. A guy that broke down in convulsions and um, would pass out when he lied. He found it was bad for his career. Lying is a major component of the human behavioral repertoire. Without it, we would have a hard time coping When people speak unvarnished truth all the time, as can happen when Parkinson's disease or certain injuries to the brain's frontal lobe disrupt people's ability to lie, they tend to be judged tactless and hurtful. Just let that hit you for a minute this morning. When people actually lose the filter and just speak absolutely truthfully, they're judged tactless and hurtful. Well, here's some of the lies we tell. I found this in a variety of sites. I'm on my way. Right? When you're like wearing your PJs, or you completely forgot about the time. I'm on my way. I'm fine. How about that one? When you're actually dying inside. Alone, sad, heartbroken, struggling. Uh, I'm fine. It's all good. I promise I won't laugh. Everybody know that one? Right? You know that's a lie because you know you're going to laugh. Here's one. My phone was dead. What that really means is I really didn't want to talk to you. Right? I never got your text. That also means I really didn't want to talk to you. Here's another one. It must have gone in my spam folder. It means I really didn't want to talk to you. <laughs> your baby is cute. <laughs> you really just looks like a little raisin. No, I I just made that one up. Nobody ever would would lie about that. Here's a whopper that we've all told, at least with a click. I've read the terms and conditions. Right? I mean, is there anybody in this room that's truly read the terms and conditions? I mean, these are just a sampling of the lies. Small children love to make up stories, but they generally tell their first purposeful lies at the age of four or five. Before starting their careers as con artists, now I'm reading from the article here, I'm not saying this. Children must first acquire two important cognitive skills. One is deontic reasoning, the ability to recognize and understand social rules and what happens when the rules are transgressed. For instance, if you confess, you may be punished. If you lie, you might get away with it. And the other is theory of mind, the ability to imagine what another person is thinking, how the hearers would hear your potential story. It's fascinating that a four or five-year-old can begin to do that. We develop these skills as a child, but by the time we're 18 to 29, that's when we're the best at it. 18 to 29-year-olds are on to you. By the time you're 45, you're not very good at it. You start getting bad at it, in fact, which you kind of grow in, I guess, to that old person that just tells it like it is because you just don't have the energy to lie anymore. (laughs) 
And in fact, the article continues, or it it's deals with energy involved in lying. Current thinking about the psychological processes involved in deception holds that people typically tell the truth more easily than they tell a lie. And that lying requires far more cognitive resources. You just get tired, I reckon. It's not sanctification, unfortunately. You just get old or tired, fatigued. First, now here's, this, is the, this is just one little section that I just couldn't pass up because it's kind of like the anatomy of a lie. Hopefully every person in the room can at least relate to some of this. First, we must become aware of the truth. Second, we have to invent a plausible scenario that is consistent and does not contradict the observable facts. Okay, so we have to become aware of the truth. We invent a plausible scenario that's consistent and doesn't contradict the observable facts. Third, we have to suppress the truth so we don't spill the beans. And then fourth, we must be able to assess accurately the reactions of the listener so that, if necessary, we can produce adaptations to our storyline while they're unfolding. Sounds exhausting, doesn't it? And all of this takes place in a matter of seconds. It's fascinating. All this deciding and all this self-control implies that lying is managed by the prefrontal cortex, the region at the front of the brain responsible for executive control, which includes such, process, such processes as planning and regulating emotions and behaviors. Well, doctors at the University Hospitals of Strasbourg in France discovered the root of the problem for Mr. Pinocchio. Turns out it was a tumor about the size of a walnut. The tumor was probably increasing the excitability of the prefrontal cortex. So when Mr. Pinocchio lied, this excitability caused a structure that's called the amygdala to trigger seizures. Once the tumor was removed, the fit stopped and he was able to resume his duties and go back to work as a successful high-ranking official, fully capable of lying. I mean, let that hit you for a minute. Fully capable of lying. The doctors described his case in 1993. They dubbed it Pinocchio Syndrome. And wouldn't it be great if it was as simple as surgery? Wouldn't it be great if it was as simple as surgery? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you would, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read from God's Word. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, provides a diagnosis and a treatment that's better, not easier, but better than surgery. Beginning in verse 33 of chapter 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let's pray. God, speak to us through your word this morning. Speak to us from this mount or this living message. Equip us. Shed light on our hearts and our souls. Shed light, too, on the greatness of the person of Christ. We love you, Lord. We trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. This is the fourth of six examples that Jesus is providing on the Sermon on the Mount of really of what, what I would sort of summarize as what life looks like. Who put these up here? That was nice and sweet. 
I don't cry. We talking about the fourth of six examples of what I would describe as what life looks like with Christ in it and on it. Really cool examples that we've considered over the last three weeks. This morning we were, were considering the fourth example. And really each of these examples follows a similar structure. They're not exactly the same in all six cases, but they're all very similar. First, Jesus deals with Torah, old ancient Hebrew teachings. Then he gives his own explanation and then he ends it with an application. It, it forms a nice little tiny tiny sort of sermonette. So that's the flow that we're going to consider this morning. We're going to follow his lead and sort of unearth the Torah. We're going to consider his explanation, and then together we're going to consider his application. So Torah first is in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn I'll share two other translations with you. One is from the New American Standard, and one is from one of the, uh, the gentlemen that I study. His last name is Pennington. You shall not make false vows. The reason I'm sharing these other translations, I think they're easier to understand. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Okay, that's the New American Standard. Here's uh, this Pennington uh, translation. You shall not break your vow but instead fulfill whatever vow you have made to the Lord. Now, in both of these examples, these translations, really all three of these translations, they point back to something that's in the original Greek that's sort of um, hidden. It's sort of hard to see. Is the placement of to the Lord. To the Lord in the Greek placement is for the purpose of emphasis. Okay, and that's a little clue of what's developing in Jesus' explanation that he'll give in just a moment. But let me just keep that in mind, that phrase, to the Lord, and I'm going to share four passages with you from the Old Testament. These four passages are probably likely believed to be where this statement, you have heard from old, you've heard where Jesus is pointing back to, it's a synthesis of these four passages. So listen to this. Listen for repeated phrases. Listen to themes that seem to be common between these four passages. I'll give you the references, and then you can just jot them down. But just ideally, just do the best you can to listen. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Here's the second. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Here's the third. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And here's the last. Deuteronomy chapter 23 Verses 21 through 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. If you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Now, if you listen closely, there's some repeated phrases in each of those. or some similar concepts. In the first one, Leviticus 19, by my name. In the second one, Exodus 20, take the name of the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2, 
to the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, to the Lord. And then in verse 23, to the Lord. There's some common phrases and some common thoughts. And there's also this concept of follow-through. Did you hear that? Especially in the last two. If you make a vow, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by pledge, he shall not break his word. So there's sort of the synthesis of these two thoughts. The name of the Lord and follow through as being central to what Jesus is referring back to. Now, let me kind of develop for you this thought of what even are oaths and vows. You may not think about oaths and vows as something that we do every day or, every do, or even do uh, often or even seldom in our life today. So you might be thinking at this point in the sermon, what does this have to do with me? So I want you to just trust me in these next few minutes. You're going to find this has everything to do with us in 2020 here in Hunt County. Okay, but let me just acquaint you with a little bit of a history of oaths. Oaths and vows were very common in ancient times. Okay, here's a little sampling. God's oaths. These will be familiar to you. God actually uh, swore oaths. Here's a couple of them. In Genesis 9, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. That's an oath. That's a vow. A covenant with you and your offspring after you, with every living creature that's with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. For every be- It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Man, that's a, that's a promise that we should enjoy. We don't have to worry about a worldwide flood again. And that rainbow is a promise of that. Here's another example of an oath that God made to man in Genesis chapter 22. We are a fulfillment of the promise that I'm about to read to you. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 16, God said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld even your own son, Abraham, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that's in the seashore. It's a familiar promise and familiar oath. You may have never thought of that as God making an oath to us, but God certainly has made oaths to us all over the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, it's a little encouragement or direction and guidance for, for God's people as we make oaths to one another in ancient times. It says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. It almost sounds prescriptive for ancient Israel. By his name you shall swear. So by the time of the New Testament, here Jesus is standing here on the mount, and you might not realize oaths and vows were still very common in that time. And Paul, in fact, after this Sermon on the Mount, when Paul is he's in the throes of his ministry, he had occasions where he actually had an oath or a vow. If you read, you might have noticed these at times if you, as you've read your New Testament. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila at Centria. He had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Here's some other places where he sort of swears. An oath. In Romans chapter 1, verse 9, For God is my witness, for whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. 2 Corinthians 1, 23, I call God to witness against me 
It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. 1 Thessalonians 2.5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is my witness. Paul is making oaths and swearing all over the place. So oaths and vows were very common. They were a verbal promise is really what they were. In this time, there was more verbal stuff going on than written stuff. And verbal promises and these oaths and these vows were more, very, much more important then than they are now. Probably because in ancient times, words meant more than they do now. And let me define that even more specifically. Spoken words meant more then than they do now. Spoken words were believed in that ancient time, even on the, at the time of the Sermon on the Mount, to affect reality. To believe to be so powerful they could even affect reality. Maybe they're leaning back to the opening words in our Bible that God spoke and said, let there be light. And bam, they have a creative element to them. And they very much believed in the spoken word having a creative, reality-affecting outcome. If you just, maybe, maybe you're reading through the McShane Bible reading guide this year. If you're not, I highly encourage it. If you have, then just in these last few weeks, you've read through the story where Jacob and Esau, where Jacob fools Esau, you know that, how that whole story goes down. And the birthright, actually, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Okay? After that, the blessing, as Jacob is disguised as his brother with the fur on his arms, he comes in and gets the blessing, and then he fools his father into the blessing. And then the brother comes in afterwards, and, it, and, and the father's like, hey, I'm sorry, I've already shared the blessing. Isaac says, I, I've already shared the blessing, and it's, it, that, that round is out of the weapon, and I can't put it back in the weapon. That blessing went to the younger, to Jacob, because words were impacting, and they were powerful, and they meant more, the spoken word meant more than I think they do now. That's something, just a little side note, just to consider that if we place the value on our words today like they did then, then we might be more careful with the words that we shared with one another. Y'all need to realize as parents, you have a creative or a decreative opportunity to speak into your children. You can actually speak them into being something. I mean, I'm not taking God out of that equation. God can use your words as their parent, as stewards in their lives. You can actually speak them into being worth something. And I'll encourage you with this notion too, wives and husbands, how you speak to one another. Wives, you can speak your husbands into being losers. You can or you can speak them into being worth something. Words are that powerful. They are that, that effective, that creative, with that much power. You can speak people into being winners or losers. Not leaving Christ out of that conversation. But you actually can use your words to build one another up or to destroy them. So oaths and vows, bottom line, were very common. And they weren't forbidden. So let's move to Jesus' explanation, beginning in verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, if you're paying attention to these examples he uses here, he sort of moves in a descending order from heaven to the top of a man's head. 
Okay, he speaks of heaven, and then he speaks of earth, and then he speaks of Jerusalem, and then he speaks of someone's head. So just kind of make a little mental note of that, and then go ahead and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 23. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. Jesus gives a little more explanation to what he's speaking to here in Matthew chapter 5. So we're just going to borrow a little bit of this explanation, and then we're going to make sense of his explanation of what he's saying here about oaths and vows. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 16. This is, you can look at the heading in the chapter and see that he is speaking woes, seven woes to scribes and Pharisees. In verse 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, well, now he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, now he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. This passage, where, we're, where we are here in Matthew chapter 5, sort of reveals what's going on in their time as Jesus is preaching on this mount is a system of what we could call scaled oaths. Scaled, you might have called them scaled commitments. Scaled levels of honesty. Scaled oaths. In this case, in Matthew chapter 23, they're swearing by the gold of the temple rather than the temple itself. And they're vowing by the gift on the altar rather than the altar itself. And what they're doing is they're building an out into their commitment. They're building some dishonesty and an out into their commitment. What they did with the Old Testament teaching that by this point is 1,500 years old. They said, we've got to see the vows through that are made to the Lord, absolutely. But we can fudge on all the others. Okay, Let's let that hit you for a minute. Anything that references to the Lord we got to see that through absolutely because we got to be faithful to what it says over there in the Old Testament. But if we vow to anything else, well, we can fudge on that. Okay? Here's an example of, of what uh, some of the teaching from the, from the ancient rabbis. If you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound by your vow. If you swear toward Jerusalem, though, then you're bound it's like a little, fo- a little finger crossing code. You know, like a, you know when you, you and your buddies are in elementary school and you make a promise to them, but you got your finger, fingers crossed behind your back. This is like a spoken version of that. And it's really a sad situation. And Jesus takes them to this, this descending scale of heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and head. And he says, in all those things, God is omnipotent and God is omniscient. So you're ultimately swearing to his name when you swear in any of those things, whether it's the gold on the altar or the the sacrifice on the altar or the altar. Whether it's the gold in the temple or the temple. In each of those things, you're ultimately swearing to the Lord. Just think about how flimsy and how fragile promises must have been in that time. Did it hit you last week to think about how flimsy and fragile a marital commitment was? Apparently, oaths and vows were equally fragile and flimsy in this time. And Jesus has taken them to the omnipresence and the omnipotence of God and ultimately says in verse 34, just dispense with making oaths altogether. 
just stop it. That's like him turning to him, turning to everyone and say, just stop doing that. All right? So now, what are we to do with this here in 2020? What are we to do with this as followers of Christ here in Hunt County in 2020, believing that his teaching is not dated, believing his teaching is not irrelevant, but believing that his teaching is, in fact, timeless and fitting for us? What are we to do with this? Well, you could become Amish or Mennonite. Okay, the Amish and Mennonite take this literally, and they believe that no oaths mean no oaths at all. No oaths to get a driver's license, no oaths to take a government, government job. I don't know what Amish or Mennonite do with marital vows, but they say no oaths. They take this literally and say, okay, this must be what this means. Or, or we could do that, or I believe we could use wisdom in applying his explanation And we could use wisdom in how he's handling this whole passage. And just think about it like this. Don't take an oath at all if you're going to negotiate on follow-through. Don't make a promise. Let's make this real tangible for us. Don't make a promise at all if you're somehow going to negotiate the follow-through. And then in verse 37, he gives us some application. So let's look at that together. We're back in Matthew chapter 5. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the point of the passage right here. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one is what that means. Anything more than a yes or a no comes from the evil one. The evil one he's referring to, he spoke of in John chapter 8. He says that when he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Man, Satan is good at it. He tells half-truths. He tells half-told stories. He twists words. He falsely ascribes intentions. Familiar with the Genesis 3 story where he convinces Eve to take of the tree that was forbidden. He says, man, basically God is holding out on you. God knows that when you Eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like him. He's taken something that's partially true, but he's twisted it, and he's ascribed intentions that are not true of our God. Because he's the father of lies, and this is just what he does. Instead of moving like that and adding stuff to your yes or no, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. I have two passages I'd like for you to turn to. And then we're going to have our supper. First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. This is application for us as the people of God. This is how yes and yes, yes being yes and no being no would play out for us as the people of God. We have some other passages that really give us a beautiful window into how this can apply to Cross Point Fellowship and to our movement in, in Hunt County. First John chapter 1, begin in verse 5. I'm going to read uh, verses 5 through 7 and just share a couple thoughts, and then verses 8 through 10 and share a couple thoughts. And just to give you a little, little uh, background on this passage, how dear this passage is to me and to our church. Uh, Brad Cardwell preached this passage at Crosspoint Fellowship, I believe it was in probably 2004. I think it was Brad's very first message at Crosspoint Fellowship. It was on walking as a people of light because God is light. It was shaping for us. So let's look at the passage. Let's see how important this passage is for us. As a people. Beginning in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. 
In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Brad's message, I don't know, 13 years ago, 14, 15 years ago, whatever it was in 2004, I guess that'd be 16 years ago, was pointing us to this reality that God's nature is light and that as people of light, we too walk in the light. His nature influences our movement. His nature invades our movement. His nature defines and shapes our movement so that we too should walk like him while we walk in him And there's a promise here embedded within this passage is that we'll experience real fellowship. Just think about that for a minute, cross point. We'll experience real fellowship. Do y'all know what it's like to be part of a church that's walking in the light? Do y'all know what it's like to be part of a church where there are no dark corners, there are no hidden agendas? There are no darknesses, no shadows, just people saying, hey, here I am, walking in the light together. That is the kind of people that God has shaped us to be since our inception nearly in 2004. It's encouraging. This is affirming for me. This is who we are, Crosspoint Fellowship. This is who he calls us to be. Not a people who are hedging on the truth somehow, hiding and hedging and figuring out some way to negotiate, some way to be dishonest with one another. But a people that are just saying, hey, my yes is yes. And my no no is no. Here you go. As people of light, we walk in the light because he's influenced our movement. He's invaded our movement. He has shaped our identity. The passage continues in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Isn't this interesting? He's talking about walking in the light and being a genuine, authentic people with one another. And then he starts talking about your sinfulness. Look at what he says next. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, this is what it means to practice truth with one another. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And this passage is pointing us to... This beautiful reality is that the people of God are charged with walking in the way of the nature of our God as being light. That we walk in the light with one another, open and honest and vulnerable and authentic with one another in every respect. That's where we find real fellowship with one another. If anybody says, I'm not a sinner, then man, you're not walking truthfully. First John says you're being a liar. So we're actually doing what Jesus is saying don't do. As men and women of sincerity, we speak in Christ with one another. A little Corinthians connection there. We move faithfully and openly and honestly and vulnerably and authentically with one another. We walk together in that environment when we're walking together humbly, showing who we really are with one another, then we will be a true, I think, gospel hungry people because there's not a person in the room that won't believe man I need Jesus just as much today as I did yesterday I need him just as much as the guy on the end of the row I need him just as much as the guy in the back corner I need it just as much as the guy speaking this morning there's not a person in the room that doesn't need this Jesus and there's not a day that that, that you don't 
It makes for a very flat and level room when we move faithfully and honestly and vulnerably and truthfully with one another. There's one other passage I'd like to share with you in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn there. I'd like to hear some pages. I just encourage you to look at this with me. This is... Uh, I think this is identity uh, affirming, maybe it may be shaping in some way, but it's definitely affirming if we want to move like this. If you're drawn to the notion of being part of a people that is uh, walking in the light as God is light, as walking the truth, as letting your yes be yes and your no be no, not having any dark corners, not having any hidden agendas, then these are passages that should really affirm you and should encourage you. Ephesians chapter 4 is a passage that we looked through this last fall when we had our mem- membership renewal. What's going on in this passage is really Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and it, this, this really is a church growth passage. It's a church growth passage. What's missing from this passage is schemes. What you're going to find in this passage are just beautiful, simple things that the people of God should do just because it's who we are. Listen to what happens in verse 11. He says, and he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me summarize that for you. He's given gifts to the church, the apostle, prophet, the pastor, teacher, the evangelist, to the church to do what they do. Just to do what pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, and prophets are supposed to do. And that in that, that they're going to be, the saints are going to be equipped and the church is going to be built up to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Just imagine this thought, that the bride of Christ, if you want to use the image of, he uses the man here, but think about it as like a bride, like a really short bride that's too short to even kiss her husband. Like she has to get on a stool, okay? Or somebody's got to pick her up, okay? This little tiny little, little bride that's like a little tiny mini person, okay? What he's saying here is a healthy church is going to be growing, is going to be built up, to where she can actually doesn't have to stand on a stool to kiss her husband, through apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers do what they've been called to do. Simple stuff like teaching and preaching. Simple stuff like shepherding the saints. Okay? So that's the part for the gifts given to the church. Now listen to what he says next. Okay? So that, okay, the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher is going to do his thing. So that, in verse 14, We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, when they do their thing and they do it well and the people of God are equipped and built up, then they're not children tossed to and fro by every little scheme and every little wind and every little problem and every little circumstance. They're grounded They have their feet well planted. And look what happens next in verse 15. Rather, instead of being caught, instead of being tossed around by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, instead, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We're to grow up tall enough where we don't need a stool anymore. What's interesting in the original Greek here is there's no speaking. The Greek word here is truthing one another in love. Truthing one another. The, the, the translators just didn't have another word to put with it because it's a weird word. They have to make up a whole new verb, truthing one another. 
I mean, I love that thought. I love that word. I love that thought of having a church that's populated with people who want to truth one another. Not just in speech, but in deed, in action, in love. You notice how this is all conditioned by love. This is how we love one another. By speaking the truth, by doing the truth, by being true with one another. Man, that's what builds a church church up to the fullness of the stature that is Christ. The passage continues, speaking the truth in love. Let's just replace it with the word that we know is there, truthing one another in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This right here is a healthy church. This right here is a healthy people. Truthing one another in love. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers doing what they've been called to do. And everybody just doing the very best they can to walk out the truth of one another. Authentically, openly, honestly, humbly, vulnerably. That's the kind of church that I want to be part of. Does anybody else want to be part of a church like that? You know what's cool about a church like that? Is a church like that's attractive. That's the church, that's the kind of church that people are going to want to be part of. Because there are people out there that are hurting that don't need to come into a church where people are having all kinds of conflicts and all kinds of dark corners. They want to come into a church full of people that are grounded, with their eyes fixed on Christ, that are being open and honest with one another. That's the kind of church that I want to be part of. That's the kind of church that I think the Lord wants us to be, according to this passage right here. According to the Sermon on the Mount as well. A people who are true. My yes is yes and my no is no. What you see is what you get. Man, that's awesome. That's exciting for me to think about that. This passage that I read at the very beginning, I want you to think about it in a different light. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know, the only thing I can think about there is when Christy took my name 25 years ago in July. She took my name. She's taking on the McGraw, in some ways the McGraw identity. She's following me. She's casting her lot with me. Man, think about that. Think about that passage. We read that passage and think, well, I better not curse and use the Lord's name. Absolutely you shouldn't. But think about it as the bride of Christ who has taken the name of our Lord. Don't take his name in vain and move in a way that's contrary to who he is. We bear his name. We should walk our lives out in a way that reflects who he is, like a bride taking her husband's name. The sealed oaths thing and what was happening 2,000 years ago, man, I think this is sadly revealing of the dark heart of man. There's nothing new under the sun. We have our own versions right now, I'm sure. But they were making deals about what they could get away with. Man, can't we do that? Do we ever do that? What's the minimum we have to do? And Jesus, though, calls on then 2,000 years ago, calls for the whole person, true inside and out, through and through, in and through the person of Christ. He's the only way this can happen, through Christ. He's the only way that we can find wholeness inside and out. He's the only way that we can walk in the light as people of light, and he's the only way that we can truth one another in love. He's the only way that we can be the people that he's called us to be. Where he has got to become for us not only the preacher, but also the prize. He's got to be for us not only the model, but also the means. He's delivering a message 2,000 years ago that we get to hear and enjoy today, But he's also 
He's deliverer, but he's also or delivering a message, but he's also our deliverer that we need in order to even walk this out. I think surgery would really be tidy and easy. I mean, I'm sure it'd be painful, but at least you'd be in and out and you're done. But if we could do it as simply as surgery, we would miss out on the prize and one that every single person in this needs, in this room needs, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.